This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. McCard carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. Uh, Just next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Guys, how are you doing this morning? Excellent. How are you doing? Great. Great. I'm actually a little bit tired, and I'll tell you why. Um, ah, well, well, I can was, guess. Well, it was, it was, there's two reasons. <laughs> two nights in a row were pretty late. <laughs> yeah, but this is for different reasons. Yeah. So one was, of course, what happened in the Phillies game last night. But we'll we'll talk about what caught our eye in sports in a second. And second, of course, you know, one of the big events of the year. No, it's not the hot dog eating contest. Although we will be no, talking I, I about that. No, I assume we want to talk about Wimbledon. Is that what you're? Uh, no, 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 it's no, not no, classic the, final. No, Wimbledon did, of course, end on but that Sunday. That was early in the morning. Yeah. we'll get to that. We'll all get right, to that. All right. But of course, the World Series of Poker ended yesterday, and. Oh. So and that's of course an open ended thing, which is they just keep playing until there's one person. But they keep left. raising the, the the blinds. So they keep raising the blinds, but not. But even at the end, just to give you an example, the guys still had over fifty. I mean, it wasn't like anybody was. De- Matter of fact, why don't we start talking about it? So okay. we already started talking about the World Series of Poker. Let me just tell some information for our fans here that don't follow it. So there's. 80 events as part of what they call the World Series of Poker. It happens in Las Vegas. It happens pretty much at a single casino called the Rio Casino. Um, They have events where you can buy in for as low as $500 pretty much, and you have ones where the main event is $10,000 buy, and that's the one everybody knows where, you know, they say anybody that has, it's true, anybody that has $10,000, you can put it up. And you can play this tournament. In fact, they'd love anyone who has $10,000 to put the Before you launch into the structure of it, um, how international versus American is the kind of competition these days? A great question. Extraordinarily international. As a matter of fact, the person that won is not American by descent. As a matter of fact, the final two players were not American by descent. One, uh, uh, Hossein Ensan, who won, uh, is not American by descent. And Dario Sammartino, who came in second as Italian by descent. Um, I think roughly maybe half the winners have been U.S.-based in the last 20 years okay. and half yeah. have not. So, it's, I know so it truly is a World Series of poker. We talk about the World Series of baseball, even uh, though that's baseball great, is somewhat... Right. Oh, come on. It includes Canada. No, no. in Japan. <laughs> and I mean, it, it, it's... it's it, it, the World Series of Baseball is is increasingly international and I should, too. Yeah, it's just it obviously is. poker. I think it's easier and I should also for that. Point to kinda... out that there are tournaments all over the world, but this right. is yeah. considered the Super yeah, Bowl of, of tournaments. Course, of course, um, and so this year, an amazing number. It's the second highest of all time. Eight thousand six hundred and fifty nine players uh, decided to play. Now you could say, well, that means they're going to you know pay out eighty six million dollars. Well, of course not. I mean, the house is going to take some portion of that, but they basically pay out about ninety. Five cents no, they on make the a dollar. lot of their money on the associated. Yeah, people that are. This isn't like TV. regular gambling yeah. where they're just making money off the gambling. But here's the part There's I want to. The part I wanted stuff, to bring up right? though is how it's it's one of those mathematical oddities in terms of the payout structure. It's extraordinarily nonlinear. Yeah, extraordinarily. So, for example, you know, let's imagine you come in the top fifteen percent. Okay, so you end up winning money. You win five thousand dollars. You get paid fifteen thousand, but then it starts just ramping up. And really, only in the last like I don't know, not the 
$50,000 isn't a lot of money, but you have to end up in the top 1% to end up in that. Yep. And then and then it starts just go- I mean, that's, yep. of course, the psychology of it where it ramps up quickly at the end. And well, they're playing, they're, they're rewarding aggression. You've got to be able to play for the top, not for the mean, and that's the way these work. But mm-hmm. what reminded me of, I don't want to spend the whole show on it, although I'd be happy to, what's interesting about the, I don't know if it's a sport or analytically is, it's not just about having the best hand, because here's an example. If I have a great hand and neither of you have great hands, then I'm not going to win any money on that hand. So it's one of those situations where, unless you're going to bluff, which is possible, there are such rare occasions where I have a good hand and you have a good hand, and there's such good hands that we both think we have a dominant hand. So it's one of those interesting interaction effects where that's why you see these things going on for hours and hours and hours, because it just takes a long time for right. this intersection right. to happen, and that's what happened in last Typically what you're event. watching on television is edited. Well, no. And this might have oh, been like, so like, like, this uh, like been the majority live. of the matches. Most of, uh, most most of the, the rounds are just somebody yeah. like has a good hand, everybody folds, and then yes, it, it yes. repeats. That's yes. actually right. And That's actually uh, yeah. changed about three years ago. So ESPN and ESPN2 now have quote-unquote live coverage. And let me say what that means. They're obviously not going to show it live because they don't want people to know each other's hands. Yeah. It's 30-minute delay, yeah. but it is live coverage. Once they get down to two or three tables, there is no editing. I mean, it's it is just live they show coverage. Every hand. That's probably they, just the World Series of Poker. Yeah, the main yeah event. just the World yeah. Series. Because poker is on television all the time. No, no, no all the no, no, that, and that's heavily and that's edited. heavily edited. But either way, I just thought it was interesting last yeah. night that it ended. Um, again, it's one of those. You want to talk about something that's a coin flip? I mean, literally, there was I, there was one hand last night where one card went one way, and it basically not basically it cost this one player three million dollars. Yeah, I mean. At the end, this one guy had what's called an outside straight draw. He had 8, 9, 10, jack. It comes a queen or a 7. He's he still in. The other guy's out. It's about a 10% chance. It came out a queen. He advanced. The other guy eliminated. Yep. It cost him $3 million. Yeah. So you want to talk about a coin flipping no, randomness. No, that's, sport. I mean, that's yeah, the no, that's, excitement of it. That, that, that really well, is. I mean, we should segue into the... And it is a heavy chance we sport. Should, yeah, well, we should segue into the, the announcement. The I think it was a Carnegie Mellon com- team that produced a... A, a uh, Texas Hold'em game that beat five other, you know, really world-class lover poker players, and it's a bot, and it's winning. Yeah. And the observation here is, this is going to just end, well, it should, it might end online poker, because if these bots can just beat human beings, then why not I mean, just take over? Did, did, did chess end when we... Computers became capable well, of beating I don't know chess. but online, online, a computer can play. You know, yeah. that's the problem. So, I mean, a ch- a poker won't end. Live poker will, will continue and probably um, thrive. But online poker, if there's a sufficient oh, reality, oh, per- person on person online, po- yeah, poker yeah, 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 yeah. Person, person on person, person on, po- person on well, which is which is one of the reasons why poker really took off in America. Yeah. That was one of the huge uh, internet kind of like. Uh, game-changing societal um, event because so many people went from never playing poker right. to playing it for money, for real money online a lot. I was I didn't really do a lot. I did a little, but some of my colleagues did a lot. And yeah. there's a lot of people playing. There's a lot of fish out there. There's a lot of money to be made early but, on. But yeah. you bring up an important point. If now people can be using bots and other right. stuff, then in some sense, why would anybody play online? I mean, it would just... Well, they'll still be fish, presumably. I know, well, but... Well, but if... The, but there might be regulation yeah. is likely to come in. There was also, of course, a big controversy for our listeners here that follow chess, um, there's an international grandmaster. This actually was so during the game, he was actually frequently going to the bathroom. Well, it turned out 
he was using actually a computer program on his phone to simulate out various scenarios, hmm. which is, of course, as you know, highly, the, the, highly, a grandmaster was a doing grand master International wow. grandmaster? An international so grandmaster. Really the player at the so, highest level. So wow. he was barred. Obviously, his career's now over. He's barred for life. Yeah, yeah. But just to let you know, I mean, we're going to get to a point where technology, I hate to say it, um, let's imagine you're wearing Google Glass. Not making up because it's Google, but let's imagine you're wearing glasses that can actually read and scan every yeah. card. You could have an earpiece in your ear or something could come up on your glasses that could tell you, bet this, do this, yep. here's your odds. So, you know, there'll be a technological solution where, the, if you'd like, the bots online could end up being the bots in real time. And you may end up seeing tremendous regulation in these sports. If you you know, one of, one right. of the old uh, arguments in poker was, what's the balance between playing the odds and playing the people? Right and uh, there and at the highest question. at the highest level not because yeah. at low level it's a totally different game I mean yeah, yeah. when you're just playing with your friends there's a certain set no of I things assume you it's only do. particularly interesting at that elite level right so I remember some of the the elite players um, um, were talking about like I think it was Phil Ivey who was a former world world series of poker winner was saying I don't play people I play the numbers that's not how this this game is not about tells right. and about measuring this is about statistics and probability and others were saying not at all no you you have to read people and so there. Was, and I think the bot issue has really, some level, kind of put that on the on on the the on the side of the statistics I, probability. The one thing I'll say about poker, no, I mean, especially for these professionals, is yeah. it really is a big N, low margin game. And what I mean by that is they're going to play. You know, they might lose this hand. That guy who cost them three million dollars. Right. Okay, the odds were in his favor. He actually made the right bet from an economic value perspective. He's going to play. I'll make it up. Hundreds of thousands of hands this year. This one didn't go his way. It was just a very costly one. Others will go his way. So it's it's a re- game that's lots of repetition. So big N, you just need a small probabilistic advantage, and that's essentially what when someone says I play right. the I play the numbers, that's uh, what they mean. They're right. playing the large but, numbers. What makes poker so interesting as a game, as a gambling ex- exercise, is that it is a hugely random game, but it also has at the same time enormous numbers of levels of, of skill. Yeah. So um, most games you think are just either skill or or some proportion of ga- of, uh, of chance, but cha- but chance in poker is enormous, but skill in poker is also you, enormous. Yeah. You actually yeah. may not. I want to transition to baseball in a second, yeah. but you may not remember this conversation we had here on Wharton Moneyball maybe three or four years ago, where one of the things you brought up, Adi, about different sports was how many levels of skill. Ladders there, of skill. Ladders, Rungs on the ladder of skill. Yeah, That's it. Ladders yeah. of skill. And I completely agree with you. Poker's one where there's a very large number yeah, of ladders. Yeah, and chess, for example, represents the lo- well, large, well, a lot chess of ladders the least of skill, of, but no chess, no chess. Or much, much more But it has chance. many ladders of skill. Many, yeah. many, many, many. But what makes poker interesting is like, you don't, you don't go, I don't go play Roger Federer, maybe we'll transition to talking about him, even though there's a little chance in tennis, because I have no chance. The, 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 he's just so far ahead, the chance is so, so small compared to yeah. the skill level there. What makes poker so interesting is not only there's, enor- there's enormous chance, but there's also enormous skill, which can confuses you it thinks you it gives you the illusion you can sit down and play well, with let me these people. let me just say yeah. one last thing about poker and then we're going to move on and any one hand you can yeah, it's you just can. Over no, many it's not hands, even just one hand creamed right. so the person that's given the credit for the explosion of poker to the lay person let's call myself who plays in you know, it once a year it's a guy named this is his real name chris moneymaker who yeah, in the year 2003 course, won the world series of yeah. poker the guy had never played a tournament in his life and he ended up winning the main event and everyone was like, well, if this guy can win, I can win. And they're like, yes, you can. And that's the thing. Can I beat you in a 10-day event with 1,000, 2,000, 10,000? Yes. Can I beat you over 
three years of play. No. So that's, matter of fact, that's what transitions exactly your point, Dottie, which is, yeah, there are massive skill level differences, but the randomness is so much that on any given event, not just right. hand, any given event, I can beat you. But that randomness does mean probably that the bots aren't going to completely take this over, at least at the elite level, right? Well, I don't think bots can play it. I mean, they're not allowed to play in a tournament. I mean, that's. Well, no, I just, you know, like, I guess. If you had some online scenario where elite yeah. players were playing, the right. bots you would, could not, still win would, would be competitive, yeah, but, but not absolutely. dominant. We, you got it. Either way, we've been talking about the World Series of Poker, maybe a little bit of chess, but we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow. I'm here with Professor Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner from the Statistics Department. If you want to join us here, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, guys, um, I'd love to talk baseball since I was just at a very exciting game, but we do have to say a few words about Wimbledon that just happened. Happened, uh, oh, this an last epic weekend. final. Yeah, but let's be, remember. So everyone's going to want to talk about Djokovic Federer, which was great. Let's also give some credit to Simona Halep, who won the women's final yeah. and beat Serena Williams six two six two. And so let me just re- revisit a topic I talk about all the time on Morton Moneyball. Sometime thirty seven year olds, of which both Djokovic, sorry Federer and Serena Williams are. Sometimes they play like 37-year-olds, and sometimes they don't. And so to me, um, obviously, I thought Federer played fantastically. He dominated the match. He dominated, no, the, he dominated, the, the, match. Yeah, he dominated yeah. the match and had, well, well uh-huh. he had 40-15 on his own serve to win the match. And so that was just, uh, you know, unthinkable that someone as great as Federer, an eight-time Wimbledon champion, maybe the greatest of all time, one of the greatest servers of all time, would be up 40-15 and not be able to win the match. But what did you guys think about... Let's start with the women's final. How shocked were you that Halep dismantled Serena Williams? I guess I would. I mean, I was. I- I mean, it's not what I expected, obviously, from that final. But I think, you know, you've kind of overpassed shows. I mean, your kind of mantra in tennis and I guess in sports in general about, like, you know, some of the effects of age is that, you know, you can have a, you know, you just are are increasing your variance. So, I mean, I I kind of, I guess, you've trained me to accept that, embrace that variance in sort of older player performance. And so it wasn't shocking that that happened. She just had an off game. 6-2-6-2. Well, I mean... Again, when you're when you're off and you're playing the second best person in the world, it might look a little bit like a domination. Well, let me just tell you one thing that was interesting, of course, about the Wimbledon women's. Um, none of the top four seeds, I believe, made even the quarterfinals this year. There were a lot of them were eliminated much earlier on. Halep, by the way, was the seven seed. Interesting. And I, Williams I, I thought, was the eleven yeah. seed okay. playing in the finals. Very different. Now, as we Williams is the eleven seed because she probably didn't play a lot of tournaments. She did so not she didn't play. Play. No one points. believes she's ranked yeah. right. number so eleven. And Halep, I was too. Seventh seed is kind of that's reflected she, in her she, world ranking right now. She actually she had not like won a usually, tournament in a long time. Oh, okay. Actually, this All is right. her first. I don't think she had won a tournament you know, in almost a year. Right, but you have to re- recognize. I mean, my my view is you, base rate is always the best forecast, and so you've said that many times. So I think I mean, if Serena won, that would have been. I mean. In some level, a surprise, but not a surprise. She's Serena Williams, greatest tennis player, certainly female player, tenor of all time. But she's 37, so base rate for 37 is low. Yeah. But Serena Williams is high, so I. You well, know. let me ask you guys about. <laughs> let me ask. So, so, so that base rate guidance doesn't seem particularly well, easy mean, to I, use. Listen, I lo- I, it's hard. It's, right. we have it's almost same. like you're just making it up and calling well, it a base rate. Well, you know, guys, we have the same problem with Tom Brady, right? Because we you know, do. Base we rate do. For him, yeah. Is like, well, just to can, give you guys. That's right. No, that's exactly right. Who knows? The betting odds. Serena was my. 
minus 184 going into the match. Wow. So that's okay. a heavy favorite. Yeah. Heavy, heavy favorite. Well, by the way, just to give you some other data, and this is where I'd love to get your guys' thoughts on this. So we agree on one base rate, Serena at that time, 23-time Grand Slam champion. Simona Halep, one-time Grand Slam champion. That's one base rate. Serena's winning percentage versus Halep's. Serena was 9-1 and one in her career against Simona Halep. So you have to add that base rate in there. Then, of course, you could add in age as a base rate yeah. if you want. I was going to ask you guys about serial correlation in the following sense. This is now the third consecutive major final that Serena Williams has lost. And is, are we going to get to a point where... Well, let me ask you a question. Do you think it was harder for Tom Brady to finally win that... But it was his, his, I forget, his fourth Super Bowl, his fifth Super fourth. Bowl, his fourth. fourth. One. This his, one in Seattle, yeah. Yeah, the Against fourth Seattle. one. Let's, let, let's just, I just want to play this out. I just want yeah. to hear your thoughts. We I all agree Seattle made a really bad play at the end of the game. Seattle could have, I didn't say should have, could have won that Super Bowl. Suppose they did go ahead and give the ball to, I forget the running back's name. Marshawn Lynch. Marshawn Lynch. Yeah. And they do win that Super Bowl. Yeah. Okay? So now Brady's lost three Super Bowls in a row. Yep. Does that have... I'm not saying he wouldn't have gotten to five, six. I'm not diminishing his greatness yeah, or the yeah. Patriots' greatness. As much as you want to. No, I don't, I don't actually in this case. Okay. I'm just asking a question. The fact that Serena has now lost three in a row, does that lower anything about your belief about well, her winning the so next? Really, and would it have for the Patriots as well? Yeah, no, and I mean, I, I, mean, I, I think the psychological aspect is, is compelling in both cases. I mean, I think it, it's tough to create... The analogy is tough because, you know, football is such a team sport and, you know, like Tom Brady, even if psychology, psychologically that gave him more yips, he's still got Belichick as coach and a great team around him and he probably was going to have opportunities because of that. Tennis is interesting because it's really just you. It's like golf. It's like you out there. Kind of in isolation, so I, oh, I can only assume the psychological isolation. Com- the only the psychological component has got to be that much greater. So, to the extent that psychology point. Yeah. contributes to a serial correlation, it's less. It's got to be more in tennis. Yeah, yeah so it's your thoughts. Uh, my, my thoughts is, I, I I don't think it would have affected anything. He would have been back the next year, raring to go. I have a question about Wimbledon and, and Federer that occurred to me. But is that as, is that sort of because of the point I made? Football, yeah, or, be, or, or because or specifically so these, he's a Tom Brady? Is, athlete. Yeah, yeah, he gets his mind yeah. together. So you I don't mean, believe he's, you don't, here, he's there for a reason. He doesn't succumb to this stuff. So you don't believe? Just to be clear, before you ask your question, you don't believe Serena Williams' chances? Let's say it's the U.S. Open. So there's no age difference in the no, sense that she's only aged so. a month and a half. You think there's? No. You would not lower your belief about her winning. At all, due to the fact she's lost three consecutive major not, finals not in a row. The, not due to the serial correlation. The three losses, that's a big deal. It says a lot about where, where she is on the age curve. But not because they're in a row. I mean, if I had, in other words, if you had said she had won one and then lost three in a very short amount of time, I don't think I'd be different to three losses and then a win. That yeah. seems our, our, that's the question. That's I'm the question. Yeah, I'm, that, I, I mean, really right. I mean, you, you, you kind of would, yeah. I, I mean, I think it's worth tracking in kind of a rolling window kind of how she's doing in, in competitive matches over the last couple of years, for example. But yeah, I agree with Audie that like right. particular ordering of wins losses kind of going into that tournament. Yeah. Takeaway conditioning and sounds, injury. Besides, yeah. before we get to your question, of course, it's starting to sound like I'm asking a question about momentum. But Audie, you go are. ahead. But well, so my, here's my question. And it is a little bit of a momentum question, but it's also a general question. I was watching it. I was at the edge of my seat, 40-15. He's serving for the, for the serving. match. Serving. And, and, and he had he just... A, Dominant um, for he, he aced the fifteen uh, two in a row. I think yeah. he aced two in a row. I'm looking, listening to this. And I'm thinking four first serves. Let's see it. 
four first serves. Don't do first serve if you miss it. Do a second serve. Four first serves. One, and I'm think I didn't work out the probability. Now I can imagine it's not a good idea to do all throughout the tournament. It must be exhausting. Although I did talk to a former Wimbledon player who was working with me in the Morton Moneyball Academy, who said that there, who told me that there was once someone who served all first serves the entire game in, in Wimbledon. Didn't wow. win the tournament, but that was their approach uh, because they didn't really have much else. But actually, other than let's first just, serve. let me just so extend what do you your math. Well, let me extend your math a little bit. It's not even four first serves if you want to think about it that way. Because let's even imagine he goes for four first serves. Just to be clear to our listeners, what Adi's talking about is he could go first serve on his first serve. Maybe it's a if it's a winner, the match's over. Or he could do a first serve on his second serve. Just keep going. Let's even say all four of those first serves are false. Well, he's back at deuce. Right. So now he could have four more first serves. Yeah. So you but could, yeah, but he'd, he'd have to win them all, right? No, no, he'd no. he have to win a two of the four. No, Once no. you're at deuce, he has to win. He no. just needed one of no, those no, no, four, no. and he wins the no, match. No, no, but I understand that. But yeah. even if right. all four of those yeah. go out, it's not a loss. He's back to deuce. So, right. so I'm just saying that it's not... It's, I'm just want to make sure our listeners know. It's not like if he had gotten right. all of those he, out, the match is yeah, over, no, or he loses yeah, that yeah. game, he's back at deuce. But so why doesn't... I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I don't... You have to... Obviously, there's some combination of probabilities for first and second serve that makes one a good idea and the other not a good idea and get probably well here's the math i could tell you the math on win percentage of points roughly you roughly win about 80 percent of the points on your first serve yes and you roughly win about 50 a good player 50 percent of the points on your your second second serve serve. so here's my question what's the probability of getting a first serve in so when they're when they're serving well in a match they're up at around 70 percent okay so if you just take that basic math, it's 0.56 is his probability of winning just on a serve. So losing it is 0.44. 0.44 to the fourth is what his probability of if he had taken that approach. Yeah, I, I just that's a pretty I, small I think number. No, I mean, it, it, <laughs> yeah. no, it, it, it's it's a great it's a great, great thought experiment. I, I I think that what's missing from it though is somebody whose approach. I mean, you know, he's got. He's clearly in the zone. Whatever has he's in the zone of yeah. whatever performance he needs to be to win a championship. And I'm not sure even at the last second he's going to change that approach, well, a- or or he, he's even capable of suddenly switching but that. What's approach. actually wonderful about Adi, your argument is it makes me remember. Remember for the I think it was the All Star Game in baseball where they had the regular version and the Statcast version. It actually reminds me that you know wouldn't it be wonderful in tennis if there had been a Statcast version mm-hmm. of it where yeah. somebody had just brought up the thought that if like the gadonk and the thought experiment that you just yeah. did why doesn't he just serve all first serves at this, in the rest point, of- right. at this, this point, point it's exhausting to-, to do it by the way i think one of the reasons why they don't is that first serves are extremely tiring i mean yeah. you just blow out for that instant and then i just want to also say the only thing that's would even make it more likely that he should do it imagine he does it on the second serve well, the surprise factor, he'd be almost, yes. he'd probably have a 90% chance if, if that in. got in, or 95% if it got in, that he would win that point. Because right. Djokovic was like, why is there a 120 mile an hour second instead serve? Of coming, one instead coming, of 95 one. Instead of 95 or 100. Well, assuming he got that for the, a, said, after, after, the after the first time, it wouldn't be a surprise anymore. He'd only yeah, but, you, but, but didn't we talk about this? We've talked about this both in tennis and in other sports. You've now added a layer of uncertainty. So now Djokovic, on even the second serve, doesn't even know which serve is yeah, coming. Right. Is it the first one or the second one? And by the way, I was. I, by the way, I want to say, Matt, thank you for putting that on the screen. My numbers were. 
He won, sorry, he didn't win 80% of his first serve points. He won 79%. And sorry, oh. he didn't win 50% of his second serve points. It was 51%. And what was I the expect a little bit more precision from you, Eric. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> sorry about that. I think he got about 70% of his first yeah. serves in, but Matt, our producer, Matt Datz, is going to tell us the actual number. So from a, if you were a Federer fan, well, let me ask you the, obviously huh. the next Who was logical. Who was at that point? There are a lot of people. Let me ask you the next logical question. So Federer's now at 20, still at 20, yeah. majors. Uh, Nadal's at 18. Djokovic is now at 16. Federer's about to turn 38. Nadal's 33. And Djokovic is 32. So who do you like? It's hard to not like Djokovic at this point, considering the longevity of these players. He's got the years. And Nadal has to face Djokovic and and, and is basically weaker on the hard court. And Djokovic is uh, right now. for sure. Right now, we've basically got... Djokovic has won four of the last five. Well, right. Or, or, I mean, and he's probably, you know, I I could imagine... I think the best estimate going forward is probably, you know, Djokovic takes, you know, 2.5 majors per year. Um, Nadal for how many takes more years? Nadal takes like one point five, and Federer takes point five or something. That didn't but Federer, you know, but the you problem know. is who's yeah. coming down the pike. This is the thing yeah. that we are just not asked answering. Are there the twenty twos and twenty threes and twenty fours? Who are the future Nadals? Well, here's Federer's the problem. So, so let me say what the problem is. And I, I talked about this last week on Wharton Moneyball. For you to win a major. And not be one of the big three. And by the way, I think the big three have now won. I think it's 11 consecutive majors I've saw, yeah. something like that. You have to beat probably all three of them because of your seeding. So maybe you're right. You absolutely can beat Federer. He's an old – sometimes he's the old – even the old Federer is great. But you have to beat – maybe you can beat the old Roger Federer. Yeah. Then let's see you beat Nadal in the semis. And then let's see you beat Djokovic in the finals. The only person, by the way, ever to beat Nadal and Djokovic in the same tournament, thanks to our producer Matt Datz, put it in our notes, I actually knew who this was, but I didn't know he was the only, is Stan Wawrinka, when Stan beat them both. But nobody, nobody has ever beaten both of them in the same tournament, including Federer, who was one point away from becoming the second person ever to beat Nadal and Djokovic. So you can talk about the 22 to 25-year-olds. You're right. They can have one great match. Let's see them have three great matches. And so as long as the three of them are still there, I don't know how someone's going to break through in maybe one major. Yeah, the fact that they're sort of like, you know, it's almost a, it makes it a little bit more self-sustaining, this group of three thing. The fact that they're all kind of playing simultaneously here. And that makes it very different than the women's side, by the way. Not saying that, again, Serena, in my view, is the greatest. You only have to beat Serena once. You only have to beat her once. And it's in the data that I'm pretty sure, now Simona Halep's a repeat champion, because she won, I think it was the the Australian maybe the year before. We basically have had, of the last 13 women's majors, there's been like 11 or 12 different winners. Yeah. It's just been entirely totally different. Exciting. All right. Yeah. What's up? Well, I just want to talk one thing, so we only have a few minutes before our first quarter is over here. I want to talk a little bit about baseball. And it relates to last night's game. So I was at the Phillies game. The Phillies were up 6-5 to five going into the ninth. They brought in our supposed closer, Hector Neris. Oh. Came in, gave it up a three-run homer, 8-6. to six. So first, so we're down 8-6 to six going to the bottom of the ninth. Now, I have a couple questions for you. First, what do you think are the odds that the Phillies win the game down 8-6 to six going into the ninth? And back to, I don't call it serial correlation, but maybe. Do you care how the score got to 8-6? to six? Like, does it matter? No. The only, I care that it's the ninth inning you're facing their closing. I didn't ask you that. Yeah. I asked you, does it matter 
If the oh, Phillies do you think were, it's like extra deflating somehow that they have to do it I'm at asking, the last I'm minute? I'm asking no. you the question. No, 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 no not no. even that it's at the last minute. Just that the other team just hit a dramatic three-run no, home run. I, I don't no think so either. The only, the only impact you could have for sort of the scoring coming late is somehow like you know have, if the Phillies had substituted, done a bunch of offensive for defensive substitutions, you know, to try and close it out and were unsuccessful, then that probably has some bearing on their ability to come back. But just the purely kind of just the psychological. None. No, not None. for these guys. They're well, professionals. Well, as it turned out, Bryce Harper came up, hit yeah. a double to win the game for the Phillies. Real Phillies won nine to there. eight. Yeah, no, actually, well, yeah. Bryce Harper. By the way, I'm starting to like my above two fifty. Uh, thanks to Zach, our over under on Bryce Harper, I think was set at two fifty batting average. Batting I'm starting average, to yeah. like that because it's starting to go the right way. Um, but uh, here's a stat I wanted to relate you. So Adi mentioned something about OPS last week where a lot of people have this belief that it's much, much, much higher for most people than it is. So Bryce Harper, I just looked this up, has a career OPS, for those people that don't know, on-base plus slugging, of .8928. I would have said 900, yeah. Okay, well, yeah. you're not, not far off. Where do you think that ranks on the career OPS. So just think about it for a second. Career. All baseball players who have ever played. Oh, well, I mean, that's... that's I mean, a, just give you an idea. That's a weird compare. The highest number ever is Babe Ruth at like 1.15. Yeah. And then for you've a got, career. That's for a career. <laughs> and then you've got, you've got Ted Williams. You've got Barry yeah. Bonds. Yeah. You've got Joe the thing, DiMaggio. The thing about this experiment that you have, this thought experiment that you have to factor in, is that Bryce Harper is kind of at the peak of his, probably, yeah, the peak of his career. Right. And let me just Whereas, give, you know, most careers have a downside and, where they yeah, kind of lower that. Let me give you a few other people, by the way, before we get to Bryce Harper. Mike Trout is eighth all time. He's probably at, at about a thousand, at least. I you're would not guess. even close. Point nine nine nine. That's it. I'm not even close. You're not <laughs> even close. <laughs> not <laughs> even close. Point nine 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 six. I went over. It's I, like, again, I expect more precision from you numbers guys here. But what do you show. guys think? Where is he? Where is Bryce Harper uh, in his I career? I would say OPS? he's probably around hundred. A hundred. Maybe. Yeah. I'm shocked. It's sixty eighth. Yeah, okay. You guys are not far yeah. off. That's pretty well calibrated. I, I was thinking. He's the 68th best OPS on base plus slugging hitter of all time, right. Bryce Harper. Can I let me follow up with one observation? By the way, just two other guys near him. I always like to see who's near him. Yeah, one of the next people, clear Hall of Famer. You would agree, Willie McCovey was a sure. Hall of Famer. Yeah, he's 73rd all time. Right. Willie Stargell, Hall of Famer, 75th. They had lower career OPSs. Right. Than but I mean, Bryce Harper. but his OPS OPS is on the rise overall, right? Yeah, it is on the rise because walks you are know? on the rise overall. Let me just yeah. this, let me just add two facts about this. First of all, walks are more common now than they were yeah. ye- in yesteryear, and so and that's why Babe Ruth and Ted Williams are dominated because they were the walkers of their age, and obviously Barry Bonds. But great hitters like McCovey and Stargell, even guys like like DiMaggio, didn't walk it nearly as much as as what we understand today is a better idea. So that's one thing. The second thing about Harper, and this is a stat that I've been working on. I have some students who did some research this summer, and one of the things that we put, are putting together is a essentially an ELO for players, which is a crazy th- idea because in baseball you sort of think it averages out. But what ELO does well is it, it, it takes into account the strength of your opposition. That, so the idea so of this being, is like it's ELO for pitcher header matchups. Pitcher header header matchups. Exactly. Okay, and so it's, I like it. So it's yeah. so we're trying to work this out and get the kinks out. But some of the preliminary results show that who's the best hitter in baseball this year? A trout, trout, or Bellinger? Yelich. No, here's the interesting Yelich. thing. Uh, Bellinger, Yelich, and Trout look terrific, and Bellinger and Yelich a little bit better. But after you do competition adjusted, Trout, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like wow. jumps. Well, but here's the other person who jumps: Harper. Huh? Number five. Interesting. That's very and last interesting. last night is exactly interesting. Against the Dodgers, closer, double. Uh, you know, 
He's been. It's essentially somewhat of a clutchy thing, but not clutch. But clutch adjusted by by. Pitching. Wow. Well, we're yeah. gonna have to spend a lot more time on this on a uh, future episode here of Wharton Moneyball. So, guys, I've always said my favorite part of Wharton Moneyball is the people we get to talk to on the show. Not that I don't like you guys, but it's great to talk to the. Fifteen experts. minutes ago, is the people calling in. All right, forget about that. All right, it's good. I was a test to see whether you were listening to the show. Right, right, right. But well, Neil's calling in. It's a tie Andy. for. It's a tie for Neil first. is calling yeah. in, and he good. also happens to be an expert in the topics of our show. Well so, played. Thank you. Thank you. So Neil Greenberg is a staff writer with the Washington Post, whose beat is, not surprisingly, sports analytics. His analysis and insight can be found on the Fancy Stats blog, where he covers all pro sports, which you'll find out in just a second. Um, so Neil, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-hosts this morning, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. How's everybody doing? Oh, great. oh we're doing fantastic. Especially, Big wins last yeah, night. Yeah, we're about to jump right into baseball, Neil. So let's just talk about baseball and just one thing I noticed. So I was at the Phillies-Dodgers game last night, and I just it talks about a topic that you've written about just recently. I started looking at Cody Bellinger's numbers. I started looking that if you just project it out for the season, he's on pace right now for 59 home runs. 59, last time I checked, is not far from 60. He's already got um, like seven war. Yeah, so he's, he's just an unbelievable season. Do you think we're likely, whether it's between Bellinger, maybe it's Trout, maybe it's Yelich, do you think we're going to see the next 60 home run person this year? I think it's certainly possible, and for me, and this is what I wrote about, uh, Bellinger would be the favorite for a number of reasons. Number one, he's a very good hitter, obviously. He's having a tremendous season, um, over 30 home runs at the All-Star break. Um, but there's a lot of things playing in his favor. He, he the, the opponents that he's playing collectively give up an above-average amount of home runs. Um, his home park is one of the better home run hitting parks in the major leagues. Uh, we're getting into the warmer weather when we see a bump More up home in runs, home runs yeah. which is kind of crazy considering we've seen this bump up since the beginning of the season. I mean, their home runs are being hit at a record rate. Um, so yeah, I think that if uh, if I'm looking at a favorite here, it's it's definitely Cody Bellinger. I mean, he's he's projected to hit. 50 home runs from some of the projections out there. I know he's on pace for, what, 55 to 57. When you say on pace, are you just linearly extrapolating? Yeah, I just did a linear yeah. extrapolation okay, so, last yeah. night. So, no regression some, to the mean. Yeah, so there's some, some projections out there that have him hitting um, 16 home runs for the rest of the season. Um, but again, like you said, on pace, just you know, doing a simple how many games left sort of thing. Um, but I, I went a step further. I, I actually looked at each at-bat, who he's playing, and um, try to model the season from there. Him, um, Christian Yelich, uh, Pete Alonso of the Mets. Um, so we see a couple players. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's going to be, by all accounts, it should be a very big home run hitting year across the board, whether it's the season total, whether it's how many teams break the record. I think the Yankees are going to break their record from, from last season by quite a bit. Twins will probably break their own team record, yeah. at least. Yeah, so we'll see. Um, we're going to see a lot of home runs hit, I think, for, uh, as the weather gets warmer as well. So, um, you know, if you hate the home run and there's some people that think there are too many in the game, you may want to switch to a different sport. Well, just even anecdotally, um, I had to look up at last night's game what the all-time record was for most home runs by the two teams combined, which is, I actually thought it was more than the number that it is, which is 12. The only reason I'm asking is, by the end of the fourth inning last night, there were eight total home runs hit in the game. I'm thinking, I'm, yeah. I said to my 13-year-old son, I said, I think we may have, we're may we on pace here to break the record for the all-time. ended up with nine, but right. it, it seemed like it was going to be a lot. Could you also do, 
you talked about, I know you've written about, and we actually, just before our break, we talked about the comparison, let's say, between whether it's Bellinger, Trout, etc. You've written a lot about Mike Trout. Can you talk to us about how, you know, while on paper, you know, using traditional stats, you might say right now Bellinger's having a better year than Trout. How have you evaluated Mike Trout, and how do you see him in, like, the pantheon of baseball? Well, I think Mike Trout is going to be the most underappreciated, the most under-talked-about superstar of the pro sports. And what I mean by that is he's already had a Hall of Fame season. You look at what he's done through this uh, this part of his career, age 27. Um, he, he ranks favorably, if not surpassing, the all-time greats like Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb, Joe DiMaggio, I mean, Hank Aaron. I mean, you name the player, Mike Trout is probably at the top of the list. Um, and that includes after you adjust for Park Effects, after you adjust for the league, after you adjust for the era played. So you're talking um, about cum- sort of cumulative, but to that same point in their right. careers so as well. Right, what we've seen him do right now has been absolutely incredible. I haven't and, done this comparison, Neil, but just to, the two players that stick out in my mind over the last, let's call it, 20 years that had great starts to their career, are his numbers superior to Frank Thomas and Albert Pujols? Uh, Ken Griffey Jr. At, I mean, or Ken, his numbers superior to everybody. Like, there's nobody that has accumulated more wins above replacement yeah, through yeah, age 27 than Mike sure. Trout. Now, if you're, if you're not into wins above replacement, I get it. Well, um, I, I, think we, I think the reason we're whinging maybe a little bit is is is, is uh, um, that the the wins above replacement does fa- it, it does factor in fielding pretty heavily? It, it, it and, factors and in a bunch. It's, sure. it's, it's, it's so not... so. Off- I guess offensively, I think probably is that what Audie right. was talking uh, about. But I'm, I'm I'm definitely not talking about offensively. But the problem with wins above replacement, it's three layers of estimation. You have to sure. estimate a whole bunch of stuff, and estimation comes with error. And it's and comparing over over years is really hard. And so one of the things that's so pure about the basic batting stats is that it's so you know comparable. I mean, you could even do error adjustments, which is huge in war, and sure. league adjustments, and park adjustments. So let me ask you a question. Right. But let I mean, me, let's, so, yeah. yeah. So you bring up a good point. So through his age, you know, twenty seven season, he's batting three oh seven. Um, he's got 270 home runs. He's got 723 RBI, almost 200 steals. He's only striking out. Um, he's striking out 21% of the time. He's walking 15% of the time. Um, so I think that no matter how you want to slice up his his career, right? No matter how you want to look at it, both traditionally, sabermetrically, um, adjusted, not adjusted. I I really do think that he compares favorably to to the, what what we're seeing out there. I mean, Mickey and, Mano, I, and I, I doubt this is as interesting to our listeners or, or even to us. But uh, in a fantasy perspective, he's got to be the greatest of all time, like fantasy baseball, because uh, yeah, he's such a he, five. Like like the fact yeah, that he, he has that too, kind yeah. of power, but with also that kind of speed, it's it's very unique. So Neil, let me ask you a question: sure. What do you think it'll take? to get Mike Trout as appreciated as, let's call it, the advanced statisticians think he should be? Like, will it take a 55-60 home run? Is it because maybe yeah, on the visual... Yeah, the Yankees and competing no. for the World Series. Both I of think. those things. Both those but, things. But let me ask Neil, what do you think? What's going to take him to get the appreciation of an all-time great? Playoff performance. Like, getting into the playoffs, right? I think the biggest knock on Mike Trout is... If he's so great, why why are the Angels not make the playoffs, right? If he's so great, why do the Angels 
always flounder. And, and, and that, I think that's that's a great point. And he's also playing. And the Angels are this. You know, they're in California, where Dodgers are bigger, and even California baseball is smaller than in, and in the Northeast. So that's a factor. They're not. But I also think that the fifty five. He doesn't own a record, right? He doesn't right. own a record in a traditional stats, and he doesn't even typically compete in any of them. In any given season, he's fantastic across the board. He, he sits right. in multivariate space, really far away from so, everybody I mean, else. So that part will come, assuming yes. he, uh, assuming he can, way, continues to be so consistent. <laughs> assuming he consist, continues to be so consistent true? for like no. another decade, no. he yeah, will. Right. I mean, he does everything. He does everything great, but nothing. Like historical, right? Except right. when you look at it in totality, it's multivariate historical. space. But I, I think you. those cumulative <laughs> stats will look historically great. Sure. Like you'll be I the first, like, so, first person with like you know seven hundred home runs and like five hundred steals. We're, or we're gonna like have that. the best chance at breaking Barry Bonds's record. He's got a great chance, obviously, at three thousand hits. He's got a great chance at you know fifteen hundred um, runs and and all those other milestone RBI numbers and and Hall of Fame type you know, cutoffs that people look at. Um, yeah, and I think when you look back, I mean, he's going to be, I think the two things are going to happen. Number one, um, when you look back at his career numbers, they're going to be massive. I think that the analytics are, uh, you know, analytically minded people are going to be in, um, are going to be more prevalent. So they'll, so it'll be easier, I think, for the next generation to appreciate what he did. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, like I said, the only thing that holds him back is the Angels team performance. I think if you, if he was in the playoffs every year or if he was on the East Coast where more people would be exposed to what he's doing, I mean, I think he would be a megastar, even though he doesn't really want to be a megastar. But I think that uh, the amount of pixels that would be thrown his way would be astronomical. So we're here talking to Neil Greenberg. Neil's a staff writer at the Washington Post whose beat is sports analytics, and you can his insight can be found on the Fancy Stats blog. Again, this is Eric Brado, and I'm here with Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Neil, let's switch sports a little bit. Um, I'd actually like to move now to basketball, because you know it's been some of the craziest two or three weeks of basketball with all the trades that I, you know, that have gone on in the league. Just Let's just start with your overall, I don't know, gestalt or feeling about the league. How are you seeing things in the NBA with, let's call it, 10 teams now with two stars? How, how do you see the distribution of stars and power right now in the NBA? I think it's great. Um, I, you look at uh, what's happening in the West specifically, and I think that's where the the true parity lies. I mean, you you obviously have the Lakers with LeBron James and Anthony Davis, and then you had the Clippers. You know, counter that with uh, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. Um, you have Houston making the move to get Westbrook to pair with James Harden. Um, you have Utah, a Utah team, which I think is under talked about how good they've become, how much improved they should be um, this off season. Um, you know, you still have the Warriors with Steph Curry, Draymond Green. They traded for D'Angelo Russell. I mean, there's there's seven legitimate playoff teams. You know, the Nuggets and Trailblazers. Um, that you can make a case for for any one of them to emerge. I mean, we've seen what three stars can do in the NBA. We don't know what two superstars can do in the NBA. Um, And what I mean by that is two superstars when no one else really has a a super-duper team. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the West 
Um, I think the Clippers are probably, in my eyes, the favorite only because they got these two superstars and their depth is amazing. Um, so I think that if, if we're looking to rank them in, in the West, I certainly think that, that the Clippers would be at the top. Um, and then in the East, you have a, a wide-open race because there's they were the, the, the losers of free agency, right? I mean, there are, there isn't too much star power left in the East uh, with the exception of Giannis with the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, we, know, could, we would argue in Philadelphia. We would argue in Philadelphia a little differently. Philadelphia 76ers probably have the best starting five from top to bottom. So you're right. I, I, I failed to mention them. So they should they should certainly be in the mix. But after that, it gets a little bit um, interesting as to who is going to you know assume the the three through eight spots there. And and maybe um, you know given that wide openness, that might have impact on Kevin Durant in like a year's time, for example. Sure. And then you have the right the Nets. You know they got Kyrie Irving, but they have to wait a year to get Kevin Durant on the floor with him. Um, you know, so it's going to be interesting to see how this this all shakes out. But um, you know, look, this is great for basketball because it's the first time in how many years that we're not all talking about okay, it's going to be LeBron versus the Warriors in the finals, and you know the regular season is kind of you know blah because it doesn't really well, come Neil, anything. Yeah, Neil, let me ask you a related question. You talked about the distribution of power in the West. You talked about maybe the concentration of power a little bit in the East. Who would be, just statistically, who would be your favorite now to win the NBA title? Meaning, it's obviously going to be easier to get to the finals, maybe, from the East. But you might believe that the stronger teams are in the West. How do you, like, if you had to pick right now to make the finals? One team. To one that's a tough, team. That's I, a tough I, thing. I, well, that's why we have guests here on Wharton Moneyball. I'm asking Neil Greenberg yeah. from the Washington Post who he would pick and why he would pick them. Yeah, the Clippers, because they... They have the depth with the superstars, right? So you look at the Lakers, um, you know, they had LeBron, they had Anthony Davis, they were trying to get a third superstar, they couldn't, and even if they got a third superstar, the three of us would probably be the caliber of talent that would be around them because there wouldn't be enough money to really get much depth beyond the mid-level exception and some rookie contracts. Um, but the the Clippers have that depth, and I think that the um, – you know the the one two punch of Kawhi and Paul George offensively defensively um makes the clippers for me to be the the favorite in the west now by favorite though I'm kind of using that loosely right because in the past we'd say the warriors were maybe you know a, a 30% favorite or or I've seen you know more at, at times but you know I think you look at the clippers and I would say that you know if I had to estimate it maybe 10 15% chance of of being the team in the West, which is, you know, it, 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 it's a it's a, a high number, but, you know, it's also a 90% chance that it could be someone else. So, and, and would you give a higher number to, say, the Bucks or something like that in the East, even though they are obviously, I, I think we can agree, not as good as the Clippers in, in kind in of a, a final yeah. matchup, yeah, I mean, I would probably but they say, have an easier, like, kind of time getting there? I would probably there. say Philadelphia... Would, it would be tough. It'd be a coin flip between Philadelphia and Milwaukee, but you know because, like you said, there's so much concentration of power in the East um, that they pretty much should be able. They should be the the teams to beat in the East, right? I don't know how comfortable I would be to say the Clippers and this other team is going to be the team to beat in the West because it comes down to health. It comes down to you know how well do these players play with one another, right? We've never seen LeBron and, and Anthony Davis play together. We've never really seen what the Warriors can do with 
just Steph Curry and um, Draymond Green and a new guy in D'Angelo Russell. Um, so we're, you know, we're, we're in, we don't know what's going to happen with Philadelphia. I mean, they have a very good starting five, but we don't know how that all is going to going to play out. Um, so it's, you know, we still have to, to wait and see. But, um, you know, I do like the Clippers overall just from top to bottom and, and what they've done. I think that they are, they're going to put a very strong team on the court. So, Neil, I want to move to one of my favorite uh, sports, which is, of course, something you've written about, which is, of course, hot dog eating. Could you tell? Well, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, I am a hot dog correspondent. Well, yeah. one of the nice things about being sitting in this chair with the only nice thing, I love it when my our primary host, Cade Massey's here, but he hates it when I talk about hot dog eating. But this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm sitting in the chair today. So could you tell us about your story and about hot dog eating and what you've studied? Yeah, so I I had the the pleasure of working on uh 4th of July. We, you know, we usually I work on the 4th of July and um you know, you have the hot dog eating contest and I'm just I'm always amazed by like the amount of calories that are ingested within minutes of these um, you know, of, of these events and you know, you look at uh, Joey Chestnut. I mean, he's just a, a hot dog eating machine. Um, it's just. What's well, <laughs> about really... twenty thousand calories? I mean, a hot dog yeah, has a hot I dog mean, and bun has about three hundred calories yeah, times seventy. One thousand calories and almost thirteen hundred grams of fat in his victory. Um, Miki Sudo ate um, almost ten, nine thousand calories and five hundred grams. But that's in ten minutes. Like you can go. I don't even I don't even know how long it would take me to eat 1300 grams of fat. But they do it in in 10 minutes and it's just um it's a spectacle. I mean, I grew up in New York. Um I've been to Coney Island a couple of times. I love Nathan's hot dogs and french fries. Um but man, I don't know if I can eat like more than one in 10 minutes. I just uh, Yeah, it's an yeah. interesting thought experiment. What would if you wanted to consume a similar amount of calories but not do hot dogs? I mean, we're not going to compete with Joey Chestnut, but like no, how I'll tell you what. Would it be like gravy? I can eat thirteen (laughs) hundred grams of fat and cannolis in probably ten minutes. There we go. Yeah. So the one thing that we talked about, I'd I'd love your thought, not just about this. Maybe in the last two or three minutes, we have the thing I talked about, which impressed me the most was, and by the way, my middle son Zach was actually at the hot dog eating contest, but was how much better Joey Chestnut was than everybody else. Can you tell us in your experience, since you cover lots of sports, have you ever seen anything where what we call it the, the exceedance, distance, yeah, yeah, the distance, the distance the top between number and the, one and, and number two, two is, so is as large? I mean, yeah. can you put it into perspective in your mind of how great a performance it was, given he ate 71 and the next close, I think, was 48? Yeah, it was 50. Or 50. Okay, um, yeah, someone got to 50. 21 more hot dogs than the next person. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's... You know, you can look at like the the Warriors winning, you know, seventy three games, and I'm sure I guess the the Chicago Bulls in terms of like the top team versus everybody else. But in individual performance, I mean, the only thing that comes to my mind is like like Secretariat was you know mm -hmm. head and shoulders above all the other. Still holds the records at all three tracks. No, Secretariat's a good one. I I I was thinking like maybe you know kind of Tiger at his absolute peak, you know. Um, yeah, but I. But it's yeah, a, but I would say about you know secretariat only because, like you just dominate right. Yeah. There, there was you didn't talk about anybody, and even now when we look back, I mean we like you said, I mean it, it, the horse is just amazing. So that for me is you know Joey, if you're listening, I'm not saying you're a horse, but you know I, I would say that you are the secretary. Oh, if you told Joey Chestnut he was the secretary of hot dog eaters, <laughs> yeah, I, don't I think, think he'd he probably would take that as a compliment. I, I think he would. I think well. So in the last maybe minute that we have, um, how do you see the baseball season? Let's just go back to baseball for just a second. How do you see the baseball season playing out? Who do you like to? 
to you know win the World Series this year? Who are the teams? I mean, you could look obviously at the Yankees. You could look at the Astros. You could look at the Red Sox. You could maybe you hmm. could look at the Dodgers. I mean, who are the teams that you like going forward? Um, I like the Astros and Dodgers. Um, I, I'm I'm really intrigued by the Twins, um, only because you don't really they haven't really been on the on the contender landscape for a while, right? I mean, but um, they're they're very intriguing to me. I think they're a team that that no one's really talking about. I'm not a big believer in the Nationals yet. I know that they've clawed their way back up into the playoffs, but um, that bullpen still scares me. So um, I definitely like the Astros. Um, but the twins are the twins are growing on me. So if I, if you're looking for for a team that no one's really talking about, I um, I think the uh, the twins could be a big surprise this year. Well, Neil, we'd like to thank you for joining us here at Wharton Moneyball. Neil is a staff writer at the Washington Post, whose beat is sports analytics. Uh, his analysis and insight can be found on the Fancy Stat blog, Stats blog, where he talks about all sports. So, Neil, I'd like to thank you for joining us this morning on Wharton Moneyball. Sure thing. Talk to you guys soon. Great. Thanks for thanks for your time this morning. So, Shane, just in the last few seconds we have, um, it's just so interesting how he covers so many different sports and applies his analytical lens to it. I think it's it's, it's a rarity. Yeah, and I mean, I think it does allow you to kind of – it gives you perspective on kind of what exceed, things like exceedance or elite performance, how that kind of is comparable about across sports, when that can be compared versus not compared. No, I think I think it is. It's, 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 it's valuable to kind of have that – broad perspective. Well, that's why we had Neil on our show, and thanks to our producer, Matt Datz. So this has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. That means there's a second half to go. Please stay with us and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of my favorite topics, sports, statistics, and business collide. This is Eric Radlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. Adi Weiner had to step out to run the Wharton Moneyball Academy. And so the two of us will bring you home for the last half hour. If you want to join the conversation, as a matter of fact, it would be great for our producer, Matt Datz, or for our assistant to the show, Zach Drapkin, to put on. I'd love to put a post on at W Moneyball about what is an example of a great exceedance and get our listeners to jump in. Because, you know, we talked about Secretariat. We talked about Joey Chestnut. I would just love to have the will of the people kind of vote up and come up with some interesting ideas about, you know, the greatest first to second that we've seen before. Because I think it's just a fascinating topic and, to me, is a really great measure of the strength of a particular player. Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, again, because, you know, it came up in the context of Joey Chestnut, and that's obviously an entirely individual performance, I think our focus has been mostly on kind of individual athletes and individual performances. But it's also interesting to think about this kind of exceedance on, like, a team level. And certainly I think that's where... You know, some of the conversation went, you know, like the Chicago Bulls came up, for example, or the Golden State Warriors. But let's and, remember, of course, the Warriors didn't win the title that season. No, that's right. And, and and I think, you know, basketball is probably the team sport that most leads itself to that kind of exceedance, probably just because you can kind of get these dominant super teams, these dynasties. But, you know, you can also talk about the 27 Yankees or something. Yeah, there's, there's other kind of examples in team sports of sort of dramatic exceedances throughout history. Well, let me ask you, in a sport that you and I obviously care passionately about, the NFL, what's the greatest in your, let's even just say, because our lifetimes is basically modern football. 2007 Patriots. Okay, so in your mind, despite not winning the Super Bowl. uh, Despite not winning the Super Bowl. I mean, I think that probably... that would bump them off the list for a lot of people because they didn't kind of close it out. I I mean, 
I kind of preempted your question, but I assume you were going to ask, what is the team that you've seen that like is the most dominant ever in football? And I think it was the 2007 Patriots. Um, but, you know, I mean, probably if you kind of went by the books or just by, you know, winning, it would be the, the – that Miami Dolphins team that won it all. So you, you know, wouldn't in the seventies. I'll be honest with you. The team I thought about the most was the eighty-five Bears. That's another one. They, yeah, I mean they were they were incredibly dominant as well. Yeah, no. So I mean, so yeah, I mean, I think we've got our short list of probably the three teams that would kind of, I think, compete for that kind of best NFL team in the Super Bowl area, best team of all time. I mean, I, I you would agree that of all teams that did not win the Super Bowl. But we are in the conversation with greatest team of all time, and probably the 2007 oh, Patriots oh, would for be the sure. top one. Well, right? speaking of the greatest of all yeah. time, um, we get to move now to a sport where we're going to find out in the next couple days about who's at least the greatest at the moment playing Lynx golf. Uh, we're fortunate to have Will Haskett on the phone. Uh, Will is a golf broadcaster, including he works here at Sirius XM on the PGA Tour Radio. He's also the host of the Perfect Number podcast. It's a show about, well, a lot of my top favorite topics, data, stats, and technology, and a sport that I deeply love, the world of golf. So, Will, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host, Shane Jensen. Uh, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Well, I'm extraordinarily excited to talk about you, uh, talk to you because, again, um, I love every sport, as our associate producer, Danielle Bruno, was pointing out at the break. But I will say I have a sweet spot in my heart for golf. I love watching golf. I love the analytics of golf. So could you just talk about how someone can be both a broadcaster in golf, where that came from, and also where you got a passion for the analytics of golf. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think it's, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's a long story, I think, when it all comes down to it. But I, I guess the easiest way is I've always wanted to be a broadcaster. I've always been a broadcaster. I've spent most of my life and my career sort of pursuing it. But I was, uh, I guess you could say I was a math geek growing up as a kid. Um, my mom was an actuary. You know, I, I love numbers. I love everything about it. Um, you know, got a minor on it in college. And then played just enough mediocre competitive golf that when it came to covering professional golf, it became really, really difficult for me to say, you know, I can't sit there and look at what Tiger Woods does and say and, and critique it. I'm a play-by-play guy. And so I don't have the chops to be able to do that. But I always think that the easiest way to connect with sports, if you're someone who didn't play it at the very, very highest level, is even though I'm probably smart enough and, and, and can look at the situation and probably tell you why it happened, it's a lot easier if you can back it up with facts and stats and numbers. So I've always been a big stats guy, no matter what the sport is. I mean, I've broadcast 14 different sports, and I've always been drawn to the stats because I feel like you can't hide you can't hide from the numbers themselves. So they always tell an interesting story. But as I tell my entire podcast audience, uh, it's not the whole story. But especially today, with all of the data that is at the fingertips of these golfers, because of what the PGA Tour has invested in and how the European Tour has invested in. And the work of Mark Brody, who I know is a friend of the show. For Absolutely. You guys. Um, all of these guys, if they're not using data, stats, and analytics to improve themselves as golfers, they're leaving a huge tool out of their toolbox. So it's not 100% always the answer, but if you're not looking into it and using it, then I think you're selling yourself short. So, Will, you've opened up a large, as they say, you throw me a big softball, if you like. So now I've got a lot of questions to ask you about your broadcasting career, and I'd like to just jump into them. But maybe we'll play it a rapid-fire round. You just said you sure. did 14 sports. Let's start with, yep. do you have a favorite sport to broadcast? Uh, I mean, golf has always been near and dear because of uh, because I played it. It was the thing I was most competitive in. I'm from Indiana. I still live here, so basketball is king. So I love basketball. But if I had to go down 
the rabbit hole of all of them. I really, really, really like broadcasting volleyball. I think it's an incredible momentum-shifting sport. The action is fast. And especially on the men's side, the athleticism, I think, is the most underappreciated of any sport there is of volleyball. So what? which of the sports is the hardest to broadcast? And what makes a sport hard to broadcast? Uh, I mean, I think anything that doesn't have rhythm makes a sport really hard to broadcast. Uh, I think really good baseball broadcasters, especially on television, where you really don't have to describe anything, that sport can just drag. And so you have to be more of a good conversationalist while also recognizing that you can go periods of time without talking. I think some of the best broadcasters are the ones that know when to talk and when not to talk, especially when it comes to uh, something with a video medium. Uh, you know, I call a lot of golf right now on radio, which is, I think, a, a more intimate way of understanding the sport because we get to describe every single part of the action. But then when you turn it over to TV, it's how much do you shut up and how much do you talk? And that's what I think creates uh, some of the more interesting dynamics. But yeah, a, a sport like baseball that doesn't have necessarily a full back-and-forth possession-type rhythm like a football or a basketball or any of those types of sports, I think it'd be a little bit challenging. Uh, but I always just sort of appreciated the challenge, so I view every sport as an opportunity to to learn a little something and have a lot of fun. So let me now bring you to our show on uh, statistics. So which of the 14 or the all the sports that you broadcast do you think has done the best job of bringing, let's call it, statistics into the broadcast, and which do you think could use the most, you know, if you'd like, improvement? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I think it all really starts with baseball and and what, I mean, it's the title of your show. So I think, I mean, what Moneyball kind of started and then everything that has come from it is that it's become a part of the regular vernacular of baseball. Now, whether we've done a good job of educating the entire audience on what war is or whip or any of these sort of statistics that I think have become part of the mainstream nomenclature in baseball, I don't necessarily know how much the casual fan understands it, which is the same problem I think we're running into in golf. Golf, I think, is rapidly starting to bring all of these statistics to the mainstream. I, I thought I saw it a lot more this year at the U.S. Open broadcast that Fox did. You know, they put a lot of graphics up that talked about strokes gained, but they would just sort of say, this person is number one in strokes gained, and they leave it there without really then telling anybody what that sort of means. Uh, but I think uh, yeah, baseball kind of started it all. Yeah, and no, this golf is, is there now. Uh, sorry, I, sorry to jump in. This is Shane Jensen. I, I your your comment really kind of hits a chord with me because I think basically because you talked about both kind of casual fans as well as 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 kind of like the extra insight that you can get from analytics. Do you kind of feel like this like jump in analytics in the broadcast of baseball? It's great for somebody like me because I have a passion for both baseball and analytics, but I'm kind of what would be called a hardcore fan. Do you think it actually ends up turning off kind of a a swath of the casual fans? And do you think that could potentially happen in golf or some of these other sports where analytics is becoming more part of the broadcast? Yeah, it goes back to kind of the whole when to say something and when not to say something as a play-by-play guy. There's such a thing as saturating the broadcast too much with stats. So one of the things I've had to teach myself in my career is I may prep for a broadcast, whether it's a basketball game or a golf tournament, and have, let's say I've got 25 really good, juicy stat nuggets for a basketball game. When I was in my 20s, I felt like I had to make sure that I shoehorned all of those into the broadcast. And the reality is I may only get to seven or eight of them throughout the flow of the broadcast, and that's okay. Make sure I use the ones that are topical and timely, not just because I happen to do my research and digging that I have then earned the right to be able to put them in. So I think we have to just be able to say, okay, how does that stat or how does that nugget 
fit the narrative that we're trying to say in the grand story of this game or this series or this tournament or wherever it might be. And I think that's the challenge that we have right now. Uh, and because I think guys that get too stat hungry, you're right, you could end up turning off a part of your audience because, again, stats aren't all of the story. So we're here talking to Will Haskett. Will is a golf broadcaster, including work at, here at SiriusXM's PGA Tour Radio. He's also the host of the Perfect Number podcast. So, Will, it also mentions, you also mentioned in your own description and bio, if you'd like, that you're kind of a technology guy. So could you tell us how technology, let's stay with golf for the moment, how has technology affected the game of golf? And I don't mean just so much about the clubs, although you could talk about the equipment, but also about tracking and everything else what has you know shocked you about how far things have come in the last five to ten years yeah it's an interesting rabbit hole to get into when you talk about technology because i think there's a huge raging debate about what club technology and more specifically ball technology has done to the game i'm very much a just deal with the sport the way that it is right now golfers now are better than golfers in the 80s because of technology golfers in the 80s are better than golfers in the 50s better than the 50s all the way back you know how much are we changing basketball or football because guys are bigger or stronger or the cleats are better or the pads are different you know we just we live in a society where we are constantly getting better and we should just appreciate the sport in its era not necessarily trying to compare across that's my soapbox but to get back to your original question i think technology and golf to me isn't just about the equipment that the guys are swinging but you're absolutely right what launch monitors have done the track mans of the world in terms of spin rate and club speed. And these guys are learning more and more on a yearly basis to where it used to be all about speed, but then it became about how the ball is spinning off the face. So we have such a thing called smash factor, which is effectively the coefficient between how fast the club is going with how fast the ball is coming off of it. And the higher that ratio, the stronger that ratio, the better ball strikers those guys are. So now they're going back to their equipment reps and saying, okay, what can we build to try and improve that transition of speed that I'm creating to speed for the ball itself? So it's more than just how fast am I swinging it, but then how is the ball reacting with it? These guys are learning so much about every single facet of it to the point where now a guy like Bryson DeChambeau, who's the mad scientist of golf, has almost gone completely away from a lot of that stuff. I mean, he's still obviously looking at his numbers, but he's so biomechanically now oriented into it where these guys are looking at how the body is working in every single inch of the swing that we're doing things now that no one ever thought that golf would be. Golf is very much a feel sport, but you're seeing a lot of guys that are turning it into as overly technical of a sport as well. Do you think that's equalizing the field? I mean, you know, obviously we're seeing so many first-time winners. We just had a 20-year-old win on the golf tour. We then had a 22-year-old win on the golf tour. Do you think in some sense one could make an argument that technology and analytics will become a the force great of parody or yeah, something we'll, like we'll that? Yeah, will be a force of parody. How do you think about that? I, I, dis, I disagree with that a little bit in terms of golf because I still think that there's a great way to feel your way around a golf course. There can be guys who, while Phil Mickelson certainly is taking advantage of technology, he's somebody who I think is, was given such God-given feel and flexibility that whether there was technology or not, he'd be probably in the same uh, lane of success that he has been in. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of different ways to achieve success. I think the guys are a lot better now simply because of technology, and then also I think the amateur and college game is preparing them better than probably 20, 25 years ago to be successful when they get out there. Uh, but again, I, I fall on the side of the aisle in terms of debate where I think that if you look back through history, if you look at, say, Jack Nicholas, Jack Nicholas was an overpowering player. Like He always had power. And I think the argument right now is that we're eliminating a certain facet of guys because 
speed, strength, and equipment is making the Bombers the more relevant and dominant players. When my counter-argument to that is, is that through time, the longest, strongest guy has almost always been the successful golfer, no matter the equipment. The farther you can hit it with whatever the equipment is, the better golfer you're going to be. That's what the numbers are starting to tell us through time. So could there be a little – is there parity in terms of guys being able to have ability – Maybe, but I also think there's just parity in a lot of different sports because there's more access and more opportunity for guys to grow up playing it. I saw a recent stat. By the way, you brought it some. Obviously, I try to prepare as much as I can for the show, and I now I'm going to get to use this stat that I prepared. You mentioned a guy, Phil Mickelson. So as you may know, well, he just won an award at the British Open. This is his 25th consecutive year of being in the top 50 in the world. Could you give our yep. listeners here on Morton Moneyball how great an achievement it is for someone to be in the top 50 ranked in the world every year for 25 consecutive years? Yeah, it's remarkable because I think it's a sport that lends itself to longevity, but the fact that he's been able to be relevant and also healthy. I mean, Tiger Woods would be a top 50 golfer for 25 years if he had stayed healthy. I think guys who are transcendent generational type stars like a Phil Mickelson, it's not as much of a surprise. And you also have to keep in mind that the official world golf rankings didn't start until I think the mid eighties, maybe the early eighties. I want to say either 81 or 86. I don't have the year off the top of me, but again, it's not as if we can go back and say, well, how many years would have Arnold Palmer been a top 50 player in the world or Jack Nicholas been a top 50 player in the world? I think it speaks more to what Phil Mickelson has been able to do the last couple of years than it is for his entire career because he stayed relevant. He won this year. He's pushing 50 years old, and he won a PGA Tour event. Uh, he's an incredible physical um, phenomenon, really, when you think about how fast he's still able to swing a golf club because of his flexibility. For a guy that I wouldn't necessarily say fits the mold of you know, a workout junkie like Tiger Woods became, bringing fitness to the sport, or even necessarily you know a numbers type of junkie. He's just a guy who has had incredible – incredible consistency and incredible God-given talent. And uh, if he was in any other era, he probably is the best of his generation, but he just happened to play alongside probably the greatest golfer of all time. Yeah, and uh, I think the other thing that kind of, you know, about this longevity, and I think this is actually a little bit more relevant to tennis than golf, but I'll bring it up for golf as well, is that, you know, Phil Mickelson has, you know, because golf is a, a comparative generation's patch, a very lucrative sport now, you know, Phil can basically kind of just pick his tournaments. And yeah. so you know, you, there's this extra kind of career extension that he gets or that we see people like Roger Federer get in tennis where, you know, they don't have to do this week in, week out in order to kind of, you know, have, you know, make make their money. So they can kind of pick their spots a little bit more and kind of increase their career longevity, kind of, you know, kind of stave off the effects of aging that way. Well, and Tiger Woods has talked about, it. you know, it, he was physically – completely worn out after winning the Masters this year. And he's he wants to rev his schedule down as little as possible, which I don't necessarily know is – it's a sustainable plan for his body. I don't know if it's a sustainable plan for his success. Well, yeah, that's a, a great – I, I think you need reps. Yeah, that's right. No, and I, I mean, I think, you know, maybe his U.S. Open experience, like, kind of was a little bit – I mean, to the extent that we read into that, it, it could be in part that you, there is going to be always this delicate balance between, like, how much – kind of practice you get whether you can kind of keep that whatever kind of rhythm going that success going versus giving yourself the rest you well need. well i think it's one of the things i'd like to ask you about and let's we'll it'll help us transition to the british open which is obviously starting tomorrow is what do you think a player like tiger woods or any of these players are trying to maximize like you could argue if tiger woods is trying to maximize 
his expected dollars from the golf course, which he's not, or even expected number of wins, which he's not. He's trying to maximize the number of majors. Do you believe his strategy of you know playing infrequently because he'll at least be able to play them. I mean, you know, yeah. we talk about coin flips. He's going to be able to flip more coins because he's going to actually be able to play the tournament. Do you think his strategy of not playing a lot in between the majors is actually a good strategy if his goal is to, you know, catch Jack Nicholas in the number, the magic number of 18? No, but he does it because it's the only way that he can self-preserve himself, if that makes sense. I, I, think, I think if Tiger Woods could do it the way that he wants to do it, he'd play a good lead-up event and rev up the way that he revved up in his prime, but he recognizes that his body is not capable of doing it. So this is the only way that he can give himself starts. You can't win unless you're there. And what? Tiger Woods is like, well, the only way I can be there is to is to slow this thing down as, as slow as possible and then hope that I can go through my workout routine and my rev up to it and practice and very minimally get to a point where, as the greatest ball striker and greatest player of all time, I can show up and, like I did at Augusta, outthink everybody and win a major, which was, in my lifetime, one of the most, if not the most remarkable sports story I've ever witnessed. What do you think about the comment by Brooks Kepka that, you know, you and I may practice golf more than him? What did you think about, the, what did you think about his comment about that? Brooks Kepka is the biggest enigma right now, I think, in the data and analytics world in terms of golf. Uh, his strokes gain numbers, which is sort of how we measure a guy versus the average in the field, is so ridiculously skewed to major championship weeks that there is something about him from a mental focus, stamina standpoint to where I like to refer to it, I call it the alpha male gene. I'm fascinated by alphas through the history of sports, the Muhammad Ali's, the Michael Jordan's, the guys who can will themselves to be better than anybody else, and very few people can do it. It's it's something that you, know, you can't get in a bottle. You can't. I don't necessarily know train yourself to do as much as it is harness something that was given to you already to have that will and desire. And Kepka has shown this ability to take his game to a level of focus. And some people say maybe he doesn't care as much the rest of the year. I actually look at it the opposite. I think he has figured out a way. Um, and maybe it's how he's wired that his competitive nature is such that he's able to get the, the most out of him in on the biggest stages. And so if that means that the rest of the year he's enjoying himself and he's working on his body, which is as much a hobby as anything else that he does, I think he's more into fitness than he is to actually swinging a golf club. It's working right now for him. So as much as I wanted to question it a year and a half ago, I can't question it now because his results are absolutely staggering and insane how much better he is four key weeks of the year versus the rest of the year. Because keep in mind, guys, when Tiger Woods was the best and he had that run in 2000 and even in 2006 and 2007, he was the best in majors, but he was also the best the rest of the year. Like, his numbers were good. Well, he does have, let's remember, let's remind our listeners, the man does have 81 wins and one more, and he's catching Sam Snead at 82. So the man didn't just win majors. He won a lot of other tournaments, too. And Brooks Kepka has doubled up the amount of other wins on the PGA Tour with major championships. So let that sink in. I mean, the ratio of Tiger's majors to PGA Tour wins is, what, one to seven? The ratio of Brooks Kepka's major wins to other wins is two and a half to one. Yeah. I mean, let that sink in for a second. So let me ask you, um, obviously tomorrow we're starting in Northern Ireland, Royal Potrush, where, where you've got the... Portrush. Portrush? Portrush. 
Portrush. Yeah. Portrush. Portrush. Um, so what do you think we're going to see at this year's uh, British Open? What kind of a course is it? Do you think it favors anyone with like if you were just going to use pure statistics to say this person's, you know, strokes gained on this type of game, driving accuracy, etc., who's kind of the statistical favorite? Who do you like? You know, it's it's interesting because it's probably the one major championship every year where the stats don't have as much of a bearing just because Weather is much more of a factor. I know today it's it's raining and it's blowing sideways over there for a practice round, so everybody's getting a, a traditional length feel of what a summer Northern Ireland day can be like. Um, and so I think it, it takes a lot of that stuff out of it. I know that a lot of guys will tell you that putting numbers don't matter as much for an open championship typically because the greens are a little bit slower. It's more about making sure that you're putting your ball in the right spot to attack when you can, but that it really, really favors guys who are great ball strikers. You can go either way with this one. I mean, Rory McIlroy right now is having, statistically speaking, one of the top five seasons since Strokes Gain came into play. Tiger Woods has the top three. Rory would be fourth um, if the season played its way out. Tee to green, Rory right now is is phenomenal. It's There's a sentimental value to the fact that it's in his home country when it's all said and done. So statistically speaking, I look at him. I look at a guy like Adam Scott, a great ball striker. I even look at a guy like Henrik Stenson, a phenomenal ball striker with an open championship win. Those are guys that I always, I guess, would sort of um, lean towards a bit. But there's questions with all three when it comes to their putter. So it doesn't matter how good your numbers are. You're still going to have to figure it out for four days with a putter. But because this tournament has never really skewed towards a necessarily a great putter going into it, you generally tend to lean towards guys who have shown you year in, year out, and coming into it that they're phenomenal ball strikers. So one of the things we always like to do, especially with golf, is so if I gave you, you picked a number of players, six, seven, eight, nine, ten players, how many players would I have to give you that you would take those set of players versus the field? Like, uh, what do I you think is the 50-50 point? That's the, the the thing we love about golf is on any given week, a lot of different guys could win. So where are you? Like, if I had to say, you know, uh, Will, you can have the following six, eight, ten. How many players yeah. would it be? You know, for this championship, it's a lot more. If you For the PGA this year, I would have said two. And the two that ended up finishing first and second would have been the two I would have taken because the golf course was just a Brooks Kepka, Dustin Johnson, green light special. Uh, for this tournament, you could go pretty deep. Um, I guess I would be comfortable probably if I said, give me 10, and I got to name 10, which is a pretty large number. I'd be really comfortable if I said 25, and I'll say that because we haven't had a guy win a major outside of the top 25 in the world since all the way back in 2016. That's how deep the game of golf is right now. So chances are someone who's ranked in the top 25 of the world is going to win this, even though it's typically a wide-open type of tournament. Um, but yeah, this is the hardest one to peg down because again, it could be complete draw. You could have five favorites, but they all get the wrong side of the draw and it wind, it's windy, it's rainy and they get completely wiped out by mother nature. And there was no way to forecast that. Do you believe anything in, you know, I talk about a lot on the show, the, the other guys criticize me a little bit about momentum. Do you think that matters at all? Do you think the guys who have been playing hot recently, does how much do you see that carrying over from week to week in golf? Does it matter? Yeah, form is a huge part, I think, of the success. So while we can look at, especially now since we have almost an entire year's worth of statistical data in front of us, and we can say who's playing really well, we also have to take it with a grain of salt to say, well, if that was all built off of performances six months ago, how much does it really matter this week? So yeah, I think form, I think you look at all the numbers, then you put your guys together, and then you take a look and say, well, how has that guy been playing for the last three or four weeks? 
you know, when I mention a guy like Roy McIlroy, he's been really consistent all year long. There's no reason to suspect that he doesn't have the form coming in. But if I look down through the rest of it, you know, a guy like um, you know, like Francesco Molinari, seventh in the world, he's the reigning champion of this event. Well, he was entering last year in that Open in incredible form off of a win, a runner-up. It was no surprise that he was able to win that golf tournament. Well, the form hasn't been as rock solid for Molinari of late of this year. In fact, you, he hasn't had a top 15 performance since his Masters um, guffaw, I guess, down the stretch back in April. So not the same sort of heater coming in. While his game, you would think, fits a golf course for an Open Championship, especially this one where you have to place it, he's not showing me that he's playing well enough to be my pick. So, yeah, absolutely. Form always, I think, has a huge bearing in it and brings a couple of different names to the top of the list. Let me ask you one last question about, which is more about the structure of the game of golf now. So now, obviously, with the uh, PGA changing when it's being played, you know, all of the majors now, we've talked about this a bunch on Wharton Moneyball, are now compressed into a short time period in golf. So number one, how do you like that? Number two, what impact, if you believe that guy's going into good form, do you think it'll lead to more multiple majors per year winner, given I only have to be in good form now for you know, April till the end of July, and now I get all the majors covered in there. What Do you like it, and what impact do you think it'll have? Yeah, you know, I think we've already heard some guys, Justin Rose aired some dirty laundry this week, just thinking that it's a little bit too much to be able to play in. I think the biggest issue right now is that there are other tournaments that have a lot of weight, too. Like, next week is a World Golf Championships event. It's moved from Akron. It's in Memphis this year. And all of these guys, it's a guaranteed payday. It's a ton of FedEx Cup points for PGA Tour members. And all these guys have to hop on a plane after grinding through open championship weather and go to Memphis in the middle of the summer to play. And then the playoffs are right around the corner. I think there's going to be more talk about how much golf they have to play beyond the majors. Uh, from a fan standpoint, I like it. I think this has been a tremendous run-up for the game to be able to have it. So um, I, I think it's I think it's great for the majors. I don't really think these guys, these guys will figure it out. They'll figure out what their body is capable of and do it. I think it's the other stuff that surrounds the game of golf, both on the European Tour and the PGA Tour, that they've got to figure out. Well, one, obviously, as you know, one of the big questions people are asking right now is, if Tiger Woods decides to play Memphis, that'll be like, is he really going to play five out of the next six weeks, which, as you know, uh, Will, is what it would turn out to be. That's one of the big questions people are asking now. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I just... I just I think Tiger's his own enigma because of what his body is going through, but everybody else, they're going to figure out their own schedule to be able to make it happen. Well, let's let's so let's put it in on the spot for the last minute here that we have you on the air. So, who do you like in the British Open? Who who is your pick for the British Open? Yeah, it's too it's too cliche, but I'm a sucker for the story as well. I think I hate saying it because I feel like there's probably going to be too much on his shoulders to be able to get it done. But I like Rory McIlroy. Um, he's just again, the numbers point to him having his most consistent season. He knows it. Can he do what others have been able to do and rise in a moment that would be? He's definitely going to have the crowd on won, his side. Oh my gosh! But and if he won there, I mean, what it means for Northern Ireland, what it means for him, what it means for Irish golf in general, he'd be incredible. I just don't know. You know, he's he's older now. He meditates every night. You know, he's in a good headspace. But is that headspace enough to? overcome what I think will be the burden of pressure on him. So the numbers like him, Adam Scott's a dark horse pick, or not really a dark horse pick, but another guy that the uh, the analytics really likes. Um, and I don't mind a guy by the name of Matt Wallace. His strokes game numbers on the European Tour have been great. He showed out in the major championships that he's been in this year. 
I think that's a name maybe a little bit off the radar who is a good links player and has the experience to do well there if you're looking at somebody uh, that maybe isn't in that top four or five pick of guys to win a major. Well, well, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball and providing us your insights about golf. We've been talking to Will Haskett, uh, who works both for SiriusXM PGA Tour Radio. He's also the host of the Perfect Number podcast. Will, thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. All right. Thanks, guys. Great. And so we obviously are now we're even more amped up about yeah. the British Open that's coming up starting tomorrow. And the lo- thing I love about the British Open is I'm an early riser. I get up in the morning. The guys are already playing. Yeah, no, and I mean, actually, kind of a weird fact that I just kind of, that's in our rundown that I didn't kind of realize, Americans have a chance to sweep the majors for the first time since 1982? Doesn't that surprise you? That does surprise me, given what we see in the, you know, the Ryder Cup and all the other international... Yeah, given the, you know, the dominant errors of Tiger, the, you know, getting three out of four himself or whatever, like, I, I guess it's, I mean, I understand, and I understand probably, if we were to look at kind of the biggest contribution to of non-Americans, it would have to be the British Open, I would guess, that, like, um, among the majors, but I just thought that was kind of a, that's like a interesting random fact, It is, right? especially it given me. there were some of those years Tiger's winning two or three of them, like, yeah. couldn't the other Americans just win the other right, one? especially because we talked about Phil Mickelson as being another dominant player during that era. Yeah, no, I mean, so uh, it, that, that did kind of just sort of surprise well, me. we will see what happens. And, of course, we're always very active on Twitter at, at WMoneyBall. So, Shane, I thought, since it's, I knew it would obviously be you and me alone in the last, well, alone with our guests and our producer and our associate producer and Zach as well in our last uh, half hour, I thought, why not talk about football? Yeah. So... I will talk about football anytime. No, I, I know you will. And matter of fact, you're going to like this topic. So I want to talk about three, um, I'll call them, very experienced quarterbacks in the NFL. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to get your assessment about which one of them you think will quote-unquote fall off the cliff first. Okay? Okay. So let me give you three quarterbacks who are all very experienced, but... Different ages regarding the cliff, and and just before we start this, by by when you say first, you mean kind of like moving forward and like like Correct. do we take into account their ages or yes. Do, okay yes. Okay. Yes. okay we're taking into all right. account all right so right. it's not it's not it's not which of these fall off a cliff uh, for, for a given for the, at their age no okay, yeah. no okay. given where we are right now yeah yeah so here are the three quarterbacks I was going to point to mm-hmm. and by the way I'm not even going to include Eli Manning because in my view he's already off he's the all, cliff. yeah no that's right so it's, I'm not it's, gonna, it's happened I'm not going to include him it's happened so we've got Tom Brady yep so. Tom Brady, um, his birth date is August 3rd, 1977. So he's going to be 42 years old in a couple of weeks. So that's one quarterback. The second is Drew Brees. Mm -hmm. His birth date is January the 15th, 1979. So he's now 40 years old. The third is Philip Rivers, who's the youngest of the three. He's going to be 38 in the beginning of this season. Right. December 8th, 1981. So roughly about a two-year difference between the two. So we have Brady, who's, let's call it 42-ish. We have Breeze, who's 40-ish. And we've got Rivers, who's 38-ish. If you had to project for the next, let's just say, three years, let's not get greedy on any of them. Oh, let's, well. Well, no, no, I'm saying, yeah. which one of them do you like the most? Let's just say this season... And just even to say this season, which one are you most confident about this season right now? Not the team, just their individual performance. I would have to say Philip Rivers for this upcoming season. And probably going forward, I'm most confident about Philip Rivers. Just because of age? There's no- just because of age and also because, you know, he... You know, I, I mean, San Diego's set themselves up with a very good defense where I kind of feel like he's, you, you know, LA. what, 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 what I, 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 yeah, sorry, <laughs> L.A. has set themselves up with a very good defense where I don't think he's going to necessarily have to carry the team. 
the thing, what makes me think of when, in terms of falling off the cliff first or being ex- essentially exposed first, because I think the brilliance of what the nice thing about Tom Brady's situation is he's going to be, you know, he is obviously going to. Is at a greater age and is going to probably kind of his his skill set is probably going to drop off faster than either of these two guys. But he's going to be in a you know on a team and in a situation where they can kind of manage that. And they already you can already kind of see them starting to manage that. You know through you know I mean this is the first few years where I've seen you know them invest like high draft picks on running backs and stuff like that. Um, and they're going to go towards a more kind of run-heavy scheme. And so I think his sort of like his diminishing skill set will be less exposed than, say, for example, Drew Brees. I think Drew Brees actually I think is the biggest candidate of those three to fall off a cliff because he's older than Philip Rivers. Um, and also I just think he, you know, his kind of late career has been all about having – he has to like – you know, he has these gaudy numbers in part because he has to like throw – you know, a billion passes a game to, like, kind of cover for his defense. So let's forget about grooming a quarterback. Yeah. How long do you think it'll be before Brady, Breeze, or Rivers is not the best quarterback that their team could get oh. for their team? So, like, are we talking about, like, right now, well, let me ask you a question. Would you take, just for next season, and I'm not yeah. talking about historically six rings versus, you know, one ring for Breeze versus... Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, we're, we're doing this uh, entirely just, perspectively. Yeah, just, yeah. yeah. Would you take Pat Mahomes for one season over any of those three? I would take Pat Mahomes for one season over any, all those three of those guys. Yeah, I mean, you give me Pat Mahomes, yeah. For sure. Yeah. You, Aaron Rodgers. Yeah. Ooh, that's a hard one. I, I mean, I guess I'm taking into account, I, I guess I'm only allowed to do one this season. for one season. Yeah, I would take Aaron Rodgers over all three of those guys as well. Yep. Hmm. Yep. Um, and so when do you think, like, how many... Forget- but no, those guys aren't available. <laughs> no, I, mean, I got like, it, I got like, it. So, so, I mean, your original question is, like, how long is, you know, how long are these teams going to stick with Philip Rivers my- and Drew Brees and Tom Brady? I think it's going to, I think they probably can, will be able to play for three or four more seasons. You know, I mean, injury changes everything, right? But, like, you know, assuming... You know, there's not a major injury. I think those guys are probably locked in their teams for the f- next few seasons, in part because the the kind of replacement level that you can get. Well, that's get, what I was asking. Like, you know, who are you going to get? You know, I mean, it, it would ha- it would have to take a team. You know, one of those teams like the, the, their performance dropping off to such an extent that the team really has a bad season. And gets a high draft pick so that they actually can replace a quarterback. Because nobody, I, I don't think any quarterback of, of comparable talent to those guys is going to be available via free agency over the next three seasons. It's only going to be kind of, you have to draft the next Pat Mahomes or something like that. And none of these teams, you know, are probably going to be in the range of draft picks where that's going to happen unless they execute some crazy trade or something like that. There are scenarios. But I think Tom Brady is going to be, you know, the quarterback of the Patriots for as long as he wants to be, essentially, in part because who are they going to replace him with? Well, so let me ask you a related question, but it's now from the coach's side. So let's forget San Diego's coach, although he seemed uh, uh, San Diego, L.A.'s coach, who yeah. seems to be a great young coach. We're still getting used to it. Yeah, we're still getting used to it, although it's been a number of years. Do you think Belichick and Peyton have an incentive for their legacies to stay longer than Brady and Breeze? Mm. to demonstrate that they can win it 
without him. Now, Belichick, of course, has been, I mean, it's hard to argue he's not the greatest coach in NFL history. Right, right. I mean, there's so much. Forget just his time winning with Brady. I mean, that guy's legacy is going to be very strong I know, no matter but, what. But do but... you think there's any part of it where Belichick says, I think Belichick's late 60s, so yeah. let's imagine in three years he's 70. Does he say to himself, if I could win just one without yeah. Tom Brady, that would be worth inf- – and Sean Payton, you know, who's obviously got a lot more years yeah. left to coach if he wants to, says the the value of winning one without Drew Brees would – cement my legacy. Maybe it mean, would mean more to Sean Payton than it would to Bill Belichick, but how do you think about that? No, I mean, it's a great question, and I mean, I do think about this a lot because, you know, I, I, I am a Patriots fan kind of anticipating, you know, that things, you know, there is going to be a lot of transition over the next few years, and I will be interested to see if Belichick does. I, I mean, I, 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 I cannot, I mean, who can guess at what Belichick's ego is really like, right? Um, but, you know, I would guess that he probably would love to kind of demonstrate... You know, that, you know, it's not just Brady. That, I, I mean, I think everybody knows it's not just Brady that's the key to their winning. But, like, I, I'm sure he would love to demonstrate that. But as you sort of said, I mean, he's going to be probably 70 or something like that um, when it's over. And it seems like, I mean, being an NFL head coach seems like an absolutely exhausting job. I'm not sure. In his position, I'm sure I would retire. But if I was Bill Belichick, maybe it's not so exhausting to him. Maybe he just does this type of stuff literally in his sleep. I don't know. Are there any... As you're looking, let's let's change from both the lay person to how you might look at it. As you're looking at Brady's season, Breeze's season, River's season, are there any what I'll call advanced metrics and analytics that you will look at that will say, wow, they may have slipped a little bit? Because, you know, the casual fan might say, wow, his touchdown to interception ratio seems higher. Wow, he's not throwing for as many yards. Wow, he seems to be getting sacked more. Yeah. I'm not saying those aren't good statistics. But is there anything you think, maybe not just you, is there anything you think we just you know got off the phone with Will Haskett talking about golf analytics? Is there anything you think modern technology and analytics in football will give us even a better lens to say, yeah. wow, Brady is really stripping. Is it his time of release? Is it his, you know, yeah, so act, is it his you know, expected number of yards gained on passes where we know where he was, we know how much pocket he had, we know how much the receiver had, we know what his completion percentage should have been. Do you think advanced analytics will help us even assess the demise I of think these so. quarterbacks? I, I think so, because, I mean, I think what, what we can't, what kind of the, the simple analytics, I, I think, will be illuminating, because we'll still be able to kind of be like, you know, for a particular length of pass how accurate are these quarterbacks is Brady Breeze and how much is that diminishing over time are they getting less accurate or less able to kind of throw the long ball um so kind of the more obvious skills like kind of physical skill sets of the quarterback I think you can probably break uh you know kind of look at that uh, diminishing um kind of relatively simply the more advanced you mentioned one like time of release I I kind of want to sort of see you know Tom Brady to the extent that he's ever not good at his job is when he is uncomfortable in the pocket and you know part of his brilliance is he doesn't get uncomfortable in the pocket very often he can kind of release even under pressure but I I would really like to track how that is going to diminish over time you know, like, can, is his release going to slow? Is 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 kind of like his like the mental aspect where he's not able to kind of pick out that second or third receiver, read things very quickly. How that diminishes, I think that's really what you know, quote unquote, when Brady falls off the cliff, it'll be when he's no longer able to kind of release as quickly. Well, let me let's let me ask you the same question I asked Will Haskett, but about golf, but about the NFL. How many teams would I have to give you that you would feel comfortable? at that 50% point of saying, I'll take those teams 
and you get the rest of the league to win the Super Bowl title. To win the Super Bowl. Um, and who would those teams be? Let's say you say four teams, five teams. Who would those teams be? Yeah, I, I, it's it, would about be in that the, number. it would be in the four or five range. I, you we know ha- in the AFC, it's the Patriots. I, I, I would get to take. I would get to take. I would take the Patriots and the Chiefs. Um, I, I'm going to expand to six. I'm going to do three in each conference. I'm going to take the Patriots, Chiefs, and Colts. Um, in the AFC, I know you've been a believer that the I'm, Colts are on the I, major upswing. I, I agree. I, I do. I do believe in that. Um, in the NFC, I would take the Eagles. Um, I would probably take the Rams. Would take, have Rams? No. Um, Rams or I, I would take one of the two Rams or the Saints. I can't really decide yet. But I also take the. I would. I think I would um, take the Packers as well. Wow. Okay. So you would take those six. Healthy Aaron Rodgers is always scary to me. So you would take those five or six, yep. six teams and yep. then give me the rest of the field. Yeah, that's right. I think I, I, maybe this is where I feel like football is more deterministic within that set. You, do, you would need all six of those? I might, but I would certainly definitely take those six yeah. against the rest of the field. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. There's no doubt about it. I want to ask you something since you've been our Mr. Coin-flipping person yeah. about baseball and stuff, and about many sports, but certainly baseball. Um, we, uh, we've got sitting in front of us the World Series odds in front of us. And um, I actually apologize. I don't know if this is to win the World Series or to make the World Series. But either way, we have the Dodgers, Yankees, and Astros basically being three times as favored as three other teams Mm -hmm. that are also probably going to make the playoffs, the Braves, the Twins, or the Cubs. Do you think that's a mispricing? Like, do you think that, you know, when we get, let's assume those six teams all make the playoffs. And let's also assume that they're also the division winners. Okay? Yeah. Do those six teams, in your view, do you really believe that the Braves, the Twins, and the Cubs have essentially one-third the chance as the Dodgers, the Yankees, or the Astros? No. I think it should be a little bit more even than that. I mean, I, I, I certainly, I do, you know, I've, I've always had this coin-flipping mantra to playoff series, and and I'm willing to stretch it to like a 55-45 in the case of like a kind of but truly this, this dominant the, you're team looking like at the, the same Yankees. numbers I am. These look like yeah. three to one odds. Yeah, no, that's right. And so I, I do think the the Dodgers, Yankees, and Astros, though they probably are, would be kind of the top three teams, and they, the 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 ranking is 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 correct. Um, I, I I I agree. I don't think that they should have nearly as much probability kind of sucked into them for winning the World Series compared to the other teams that make the playoffs. If I'm, I'm willing to kind of deviate from like you know one eighth for every team a little bit, but I'm not willing to kind of have any team be three times the odds of some other team. What's what's got you most excited about the baseball season right now? Given, we'll take an example. Your team, the Red Sox. They're not out of it by no, any means. No, and then, so their like, epic run to the playoffs has got me a little bit excited. Yeah, that I'm hoping for. Yeah, you're hoping for. Yeah. But I'm saying, if you eliminate the Red Sox and the potential of them making the playoffs again, is there anything else? Any other team? You've mentioned the Twins. I mean, just it's an incredible run for yeah. the team. I mean, as a matter of fact, they have the second fewest. The Yankees, Dodgers, and the Twins essentially have all the same. Astros are right there. Braves are near there. They all basically have the same record in baseball. Does that? surprise you anything that got you excited about baseball well so i mean a couple things that have me excited about baseball um beyond beyond kind of the al east which we 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 cover a lot um is kind of the some of the individual performance aspects of it like what cody bellinger is doing what mike trout does every year what uh, what christian yelch is doing i mean i'm really just kind of excited by some of these 
performances, the prospect of a 60 home run season. So some of this individual achievement has got me very excited. I've, I find myself tuning into broadcasts for like the Brewers, for example. Right. The other reason I'm turning into a lot of Brewers broadcasts when I can is the NL Central, I think, is going to be a really interesting race coming down. I mean, you know, the Cubs... Cardinals, Brewers. I Why, could just because five teams are separated by basically four games or all, five yeah, games? Yeah, the entire the division column. is the tight. Division. I, I, mean, I mean, the Reds have really come, you know, have certainly improved. I mean, they were looking like one of the worst teams. They were going to be one of the worst teams in baseball, and they've really come up. Um, and so that that division is 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 competitive top to bottom. But specifically, this kind of Cubs, Cardinals, Brewers um, competition is really exciting to me. A, because it's going to be a close race for the division, and B, because the teams that don't win the division out of those three are probably, I mean, they may not even be in contention with the wild card, right? So so it might be a division or bust for all three of those teams. Well, you brought up an interesting division, by the way, for a different reason. I Just looking at the uh, runs scored, runs against, I can't believe, I mean, I knew the Rays, the Tampa Bay Rays, had given up the fewest runs in baseball. Do you know who's given up the second fewest runs in baseball? Um, compared to the Rays? Yep. Oh, man. Uh, it's only by one run over the third-place team. The Rays are number one. They've given I mean, up the 300. The Dodgers have such great they're, pitching. They're, three, they're third by okay. one run. The Reds. Huh. Yeah. I mean, I'm just looking here. Reds have given up 366 runs. The Dodgers, 367. And the Rays are 350. But I would never have thought. Yeah. I would never, ever have thought about that. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. that the Reds are that good. Well, we have been talking about the NFL, so people would be thinking we're making our NFL picks, our Moneyball picks, our Moneyball matchup picks, but it's not that time of year, but it is the time of the year for our over-under segment. It's Wharton Moneyball's over-under. Now, of course, since I'm sitting in this chair, yeah. I, not only, I, I get to be the host and I get to run the over-under segment. So, well, we were talking about the NFL, so let's start with the NFL. So, 0.5 Super Bowl appearances... Four. So Matt even wants to limit it to three teams. All right. Saints, Patriots, Chargers. Now, this is appearances. This isn't winning, so that's a yep. little different. Yep, yep. So I'll give you the Saints, the Patriots, and the Chargers, and I get the rest of the league, .5 Super Bowl appearances for those. Just one of those three teams appear, or more, of course, would cover, yeah. appear in the Super Bowl. I'm going to take the under on this one. I, uh, I think... Yeah, I'm going to take the under on it, even, even though the Patriots are in there. I, I think somehow, in my mind, for those three teams, the odds, the probability of any of them making the world's, uh, the Super Bowl um, is less than 0. 0.5. I think it's, you know, I, I think the Patriots is certainly less than 0. 0.5 on, on their side because I think the the Chiefs, Colts, and some other team could easily, you know, make, make the Super Bowl from the AFC East. And then, you know, we're just left with kind of the Saints on the other side. No, I, I'm going to take the under. Yeah, I, so with me, it all is about how much weight I'm going to put on the yeah. Patriots. Because I'll be honest with you, I'm not a believer in the Chargers yet. I don't, I'm don't. i not going to say they have zero chance. I, I think they're at best the third best team in the AFC. I don't think they're better than the Patriots. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're better than the Chiefs. So I think that. The Saints, um, you could say, you know, they were a player away from going to the Super Bowl, which is true. Maybe winning the Super Bowl, that's true. It's hard to imagine them playing better, better this than upcoming ex- ex- season. I, yeah. yeah, I don't see it. So yeah. the question to me is the Patriots. Um, I'm going to go under as well, um, and mainly because I think that the Chiefs, well, we could argue again, 
not diminishing what the Patriots did. The Chiefs were one play away also from yeah. defeating the Patriots and going to the Super oh, Bowl. Yeah. And so um, literally one play away as well. Uh, I mean, they made that play. They just had a penalty on it. I'm not saying they yeah. didn't win the game yeah. fair and square. All I'm yeah. commenting on is I think you have yeah. to go under. So we're both going under yeah. on that one. Here's one that I cannot believe. 30 and a half touchdowns for Drew Brees. Is that possible? That's what's sitting on our piece of paper. Yeah. Doesn't he throw for like 50 touchdowns a season? Well, I'll go first. Over. Drew Brees is going to throw for more than 31. He's going to throw for 31 touchdowns. Over. Yeah. I'll take the over on that one, too. I think, I think you know, I mean, you know, you have to take into account diminishing skill set of due to age and stuff like that. But, yeah, that guy's going to have to. I mean, you know, the Saints are the Saints. I mean, they're going to have to, you know, he's going to have to score 30 points ball. a game to win. What's interesting here is the over-under for Brady is 29, which would imply, let's just say I'll give you the following. Who's going to throw more touchdown passes next year? I'll give you, I'll take Breeze, you take Brady, and I'll take minus one and a half. Who are you taking? Oh, I take Breeze. I think Breeze is going to have to throw it out a lot more than That's Brady That's what I'm is saying, but I'm just saying yeah. the, yeah. the, the, the yeah. Vegas odds have it that yeah. way that I could take Breeze and only give, forget whether I'm going to throw 31 or not. I take Breeze and give you only one and a half for Brady? Yeah, no, I, I think that, yeah, I, I think Brady, again, because they are going to try and manage, I think, Brady a lot as far as, you know, what he has to do in, in any given game. I think he's going to be much lower than Breeze in terms of the number of touchdowns. Well, let's quickly go on to golf just for our last minute or so. Rory McIlroy, does he have a top 10 finish in the British Open? Yes, I think so. I'm going to take, I guess it would be the under on that. The under? I, I would take, uh, he's going to do better than, you know, ninth place, uh, ninth place or better in the British Open. I think he will too. I don't like him to win. I think there's, look, there's two factors. One is he's going to have the massive crowd in front yeah. and on his side. But wow, the weight and the pressure of trying yeah, to no, win. Yeah, no, it's unclear that having that crowd that into you winning is going to actually is a positive in that respect. I don't know. I mean, the psychological part of it is I, just as you sort of said. I kind of feel like just in terms of his skill set and how he's playing right now should get him to the top ten. Beyond that, the kind of psychology and all that yeah. stuff and pressure that he's going to face to actually win it. Who? And maybe the last one of the day. Will the winner of the British Open be in the top? 13 in the world. So you get McElroy, Kepka, Johnson, Rom, Woods, Rose, Schaufley, Cantley, Fowler, Scott, Stenson, and Thomas. And then would you rather have those 12 or the other 144 golfers? It's just very similar to kind of the over under, the kind of like, you know, uh, you know, how many players do you need? Uh, I'm going to take, I'm going to take the, uh, I'm going to take those. You're going to take, take those, those guys. golfers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to take those golfers, too. I All like right. that set. Well, this has been two hours of Wharton Moneyball. I'd like to thank my co-host, Shane Jensen, for talking about my three favorite topics for the last two hours with me. I'd like to thank our producer, Matt, Tat Matt Datz. I'd like to thank our associate producer and sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. I'd like to thank our help in the back, Zach Drapkin. And I'd like to thank all of our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball. This has been two hours of sports statistics and business, some combination of myself, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, and Cade Massey are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern live and replayed throughout the week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. We'll see you next week on Wharton Moneyball. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.